Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm editor Rich Eisen, and today I am not joined by my usual partner in crime, Tim Foster, who's on vacation, but I am not playing solo. I am, in fact, joined by a very familiar face around the Capital community, our very good friend and stellar reporter, Dan Moraine. How are you doing today, Dan? Couldn't be better. That's outstanding. And of course, I'm really glad to have Dan with us again today uh, for what promises to be a a very interesting discussion about an issue that has uh, certainly become one of the most talked about around the Capitol this year, efforts to reform the Lanterman-Petrus Short Act, which then-Governor Ronald Reagan signed into law in 1967, uh, and which was intended to stop the indefinite institutionalization of people with mental illnesses and developmental disabilities. Now, we all know critics have contended very, almost from day one, that law also prevents people from receiving uh, desperately needed mental health care. And of course, now it may be leading to a pretty significant uptick in homelessness. Several efforts have been made over the years to reform LPS. But our guest today, Democratic Senator Susan Talamantes Eggman and her Republican colleague, Roger Nilo, believe much more needs to be done. They are the primary sponsors, along with Senator Scott Wiener, of Senate Bill 43, which would essentially make it easier for those suffering from serious mental illnesses to be placed under care and to receive care, uh, even if that is against their will. Uh, As you might imagine, there are very strong emotions on both sides of this measure. There are many, of course, who contend that that is an extreme violation of people's civil rights. It's an argument we've been having for a long time, so I'm really grateful to have Senators with us today. Uh, Welcome, Susan and Roger. I'll feel comfortable calling you that now. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Rich. Absolutely. Well, like I said, let's get started. I gave the very basics of the bill, but why don't you, Susan, let me uh, hand it off to you. Give us the back story here. You know, what is the motivation on the bill? What uh, does the bill do? And what, you know, are you hoping to accomplish? Well, I think you kind of, you went over pretty well the backstory, Rich. Lanterman Pettus Act was passed in 1967, a long time ago. And I think we've seen the inability for people to get the help that they really need. And I think it's uh, escalated into a real crisis. So I want to be really clear that everybody on this call believes that voluntary care is best and the the optimum. Um, But we are also aware that not everybody is in the ability or the place to to even acknowledge that they may need some help. So we're changing nothing in the criteria of the LPS Act or nothing in the in the process. The maintenance of civil rights and all the processes are still in place. All the steps are still in place. All the protections are still there. It simply changes the criteria that is applied to be able to hold somebody against their will to expand grave disability, to also include things like your ability to provide your own self-protection. And without treatment, that your condition will continue to deteriorate, endangering either your mental and or your physical health. That's kind of the basic uh, parameters of what we're talking about changing, which to the average person would seem like that's pretty reasonable. If somebody's mental and it has to be as a result of their mental and or substance abuse condition that leads to that inability to be able to provide for their basic needs and self-protection. Senator Nilo, you're um, you're Republican, and you've signed on as co-author of this bill with uh, Senator Eggman, who's a Democrat. Talk about the bipartisan. I mean, why why would you do that? Well, 
<laughs> to even put a bigger exclamation point on it, I was reading the newspaper the other morning and KFPK News was on in the background. And Sam Shane and Christina Mendoza, I heard them say, Roger Nilo and Scott Weiner. I mean, <laughs> you know, definitely two people uh, on a very, very opposite ends of the philosophic spectrum. But the fact of the matter is the problem we have with homelessness is not a partisan issue. Uh, in my opinion, it is the biggest challenge that the state of California uh, faces right now. Uh, we're spending a lot of money and it's getting worse. We need to get a better grip on this. And uh, it's really the reason that I decided to run because I was so frustrated watching the problem grow. And early on, I approached uh, Susan. I, I had met her before and I view her really as the lead on this stuff. And she is a social worker, a professor in the field. Frankly, she has forgotten more about this stuff than I know I'm learning. I just know it's a problem and we need to address it. I do think mental illness and substance abuse is a significant part of it. People are languishing on the streets uh, without treatment. I think it's important to point out the uh, Lennerman Petra Short Act has a definition of gravely disabled under which a person can be put to involuntary care. We're just expanding the definition because that's not working. And frankly, Frank Lannerman himself, before he passed away, said that that act needed to be reworked. He saw the unintended consequences. So it's not a partisan issue. And frankly, some of the best friends I've made in my legislative career have been Democrats anyway. Do you expect, just along those lines, to get support from other Republicans? Or are you out on a limb here? I don't think so. Politics? I don't think so. And uh, Susan's uh, bill passed the uh, health committee with the unanimous vote. Uh, I sense the attitude toward this has changed a bit. There are still those that uh, are opposed. But you remember uh, Helen Thompson spent her whole six years in the assembly trying to do this. And not only was she unsuccessful, she was vilified by a lot of people. But I sense attitudes have changed, and I think we can get this over the finish line, he said optimistically. Well, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe there are two other Republicans who are listed as co-sponsors on this bill. Am I correct? I believe Gallagher and Chen are both. Yeah, and I had when we, we did the press conference on this, and Roger was unable to be there today, but I had Scott Weiner on one side of me and James Gallagher on the other side, so... It just feels like a very strong coalition in addition to the 13 big mayors, in addition to the county organizations are coming on. And we have the professional organizations with us, NAMI with us. Um, so it just really feels like a coalition that this year, I think everyone's just reached a point where what we're doing is not working. And it is certainly not compassionate nor progressive to allow people to suffer on the streets in the way that, that we're seeing every single day. Well, that said... I think we all have an image of what most of the big state hospitals look like previous to LPS. And I, you know, I think there is definitely fear among some people that that is what we're going to see again. Really, please address that concern that, you know, because when you talk about forcing somebody into care, you know, we do have images of people, you know, in some of the worst conditions we've ever seen. And I know that's not what your intent is here, but please address that issue. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And thank you for asking that. Absolutely. And the goal is always to move people down to the lowest level of care, right? At the very end, may come a conservatorship, but hopefully, oftentimes with just a two-week hold, people can get stabilized and then referred to treatment. 
So over these last few years, we have invested over $12 billion into our behavioral health system in the state of California. And a lot of that for housing, step-down housing. And as you know, we're doing a, a bill with the governor this year, with uh, redoing MHSA to allow a billion dollars of that a year to be able to pay for ongoing housing, but a bond to be able to build more of these villages, cottages, residential type things. That was was really the promise uh, when LPS passed. Just a, a little bit of history. The, we did our first survey of America on mental health issues in 1880. And wh- where were people? There was about 100,000 people that were deemed insane at that time, is that's the term that they used. Uh, about 50% of them were in asylums, and the other rest of them were in home settings and community, and 0.07% were incarcerated. You flip that around today to those that say that we're just going to warehouse people. People are being warehoused right now, but in our prisons and in our jails. And I really, you know, so our opposition to disability rights folks, nobody's talking about that. The majority of people that are being treated for mental health issues today and locked facilities have had all of their rights removed and are incarcerated. And the folks that currently are in our, our state hospitals are those who have found unable to stand trial. Those are the IST people. They are unable to stand trial. So they're in a state hospital getting care so that they can come back out and stand trial for a crime that they committed. And oftentimes not even having the insider, the knowledge to know that they were doing something illegal, but acting out their mental health issue. And again, I would just say that we have concrete, hardcore evidence that we are incarcerating people, criminalizing mental health issues. We're trying to move back away from that and treat people in the, with the, and, and the, we have increased so much in our laws and our knowledge um, and in our treatments since we had available to us in 1967. Some of the long acting psychotropics and such. So, Senator, you used a couple of initials. Um, IST is incompetent to stand trail. And MS, MHSA, the Mental Health Services Act, that was approved by voters in 2004, raises a tax on um, people who whose earnings exceed a million dollars. So an extra 1% income tax on people for earnings, a million or more. That's generating $4 billion a year right now. Uh, this is a question for Cinder Nilo. Well, and both of you, is that money being wisely spent? I mean, Cinder Eggman pointed out that we're spending twelve million dollars, twelve billion dollars, excuse me, on on uh, mental health care annually. This four billion dollars from um, this initiative we all passed in two thousand four. Are we spending it wisely? Well, further than that, we spent about twenty billion dollars in the last five years on specifically on homeless programs. And during that time, the homeless count has increased pretty significantly. So I'd say on a broad sense, it would appear that we're not spending the money efficiently or effectively, but we really don't know exactly why the uh, state auditor is going to be doing an audit of uh, homeless programs, starting with the community of San Jose and then another community that the auditor will pick so that we can begin to assess these programs. With regard to the Mental Health Act and that uh, funding, even Daryl Steinberg himself, who was really the author of that initiative, uh, has said that he thinks that it needs to be changed so that the spending can be focused a little bit differently. So uh, the answer to your question would have to be no, and that's part of what we have to work on. I would add, too, with regard to what uh, Susan was saying before, the Landerman-Petra Short Act was addressing mental health treatment 
as it was pictured in the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That may have been a characterization, but it was pretty accurate. And uh, our approach to mental illness, as well as our available medical treatments to mental illness, have come one heck of a long way since one flew over the cuckoo's nest. So we're at a different time. That kind of gets back to what Rich was saying. But uh, no, we could do a better job, certainly in the way that we're spending the money. And I would certainly agree, which is why we're working on that this year. So if you, uh, well, first of all, in your legislation, um, Cinder Eggman, how many people do you expect this would affect? Um, I think that's a, a difficult number to say because we're also, don't forget, we're also doing CalAIM, which right, we should, should also be able to deal with this. We also put into effect that's going online, the CARE Court program, which again, should also be able to remove some of these folks earlier in the process, earlier outreach. So, you know, when we talk, when we did CARE Court, we said maybe between seven and 12,000, I would say that population is much smaller for this population. So where where do you put them? Where are they going to sleep? That's up to every single county, right? Every single county has been provided funding for bridge programs. Every county has been provided and has been given the charge of increasing bed space. And part of it is making sure that there is a payer on the other end of that. You know, as you might guess, we get a calls from a lot of professionals calling in, voicing their opinions. And a lot will say, finding a bed's not that difficult. It's finding a bed that has a payment source. If there's a payment source, we can generally find a bed, which is why we're also doing, administration is going forward with IMD waivers. So, I mean, it depends on which county you're in, but the transition would be into, you know, potentially, again, the same 5150, 5250 process, all stay, still remains the same. So we're not talking about conserving anyone right up front. Uh, and at that point, I would think somebody would be not in a locked facility, that they would be in a village type setting and a cottage type setting, a housing that heals type setting uh, that are throughout all of our communities. They are in existence throughout all our communities. Do we need more? Yes, we do. We need more. And that's partly part of the funding that we're sending down to provide more for that. I just visualize really being able to, I mean, really that lock setting being for those people on the very front end when they're in an active psychotic state. Senator, let me ask you a question though, because I'm, I don't know, maybe the bill addresses this directly. I haven't, I haven't examined it closely enough, but what about somebody who is in that state who doesn't have family or doesn't have an advocate for them? Does the bill address, I mean, is this something that law enforcement would be able to do and start this process? Or is it something that would have to be fostered by a family member or, or, you know, somebody that had that legal authority. It would be, and, and I'm sure we all have those stories and experiences of people saying, I took them to the hospital and they, they were unable to be held because they were deemed, right? Or somebody will call, they see somebody in the middle of the street or who's been hit by a car or who has an open wound. Again, as we know, people are deteriorating to really horrific extents on our streets, especially in the severe weather episodes that we've had recently. So oftentimes those folks end up at a hospital, an emergency room, at a PUF unit, because somebody has called through law enforcement. That's often how the process will start. The care court process is one that people can refer directly into, but the LPS is not something that people refer directly into. Senator, you, you used a, another I'm acronym. Sorry. I'm sorry. Puff, I'm puff sorry unit. Again. What's a PUF unit? A PUF unit is a psychiatric inpatient unit that's generally attached to a county behavioral health setting. 
Right, right. You also made reference to the IMD exclusion. And so so I forget what the number is, but it's some small number. The federal government will pay for the care of somebody in an institution that is fewer than, what is it, 15 I think, beds? I think beds? it's 16. Yeah, I think it's 16. 16, 16 beds. And so the governor... And, and, that's, and that was an attempt to be able to, again, to not have people be long-term institutionalized in locked facilities. Right. Um, I believe that dates to 1965. I think you're you're probably and, right, but again, yeah. it was a whole movement. Yeah. So um, and so the so the Newsom administration is trying to get a waiver from that exclusion, so the feds would then pay for beds for people who are staying in facilities that are greater than over, 60 over, beds. Over 60 is, that, beds. is that what you're talking about? That's what I'm talking about. But in order to be eligible for that, you've got to be able to show and demonstrate that you have a full continuum of care in place. That's the goal of this whole part, right? The LPS is just one part of it, but it's really strengthening and our entire continuum of care from standing up a platform for kids five to 25 to be able to get assessed and have more help in the schools all the way to this end piece. So you have to be able to demonstrate that you're going to be able to be able to move people down levels of care or step down from a lock to a cottage to independent living, if possible. So the Brown administration, not all that long ago, in 2018, finally closed down Sonoma State Hospital and Fairview State Hospital, Sonoma and Sonoma, Fairview and Orange County. Do you, do either of you believe that we ought to go back to a state hospital system? I have ideas about that, but I, I would defer to Susan. Yeah, at this point, I don't, I don't see the need. Right. I mean, when our system really starts working and we're actually able to figure out how many people would need that kind of facility. But I don't envision it again with the new medications we have, new treatments of care that we have, much greater understanding of the brain and the importance of community supports. I don't see a need for long term for people to stay in an institution like that. No, I don't. I don't personally. The vision of uh, LPS was that state hospitals would be closed and the care would be provided by counties. And initially the bill had funding in it for that. But in a Senate hearing, a particular senator was protesting the cost. And in order to get his vote, they took the funding out. A uh, member of our fiscal staff who was in uh, John Morlock's office some years ago wrote a very detailed history of LPS. And she pointed that out in that fateful hearing. The, the funding was taken out. But counties are service providers for HHS uh, services. They obviously need uh, the funding in, in order to provide it. And they need a commitment of multiple years, too, which has kind of been lacking recently. But I would agree with Susan. I don't think we want to go back to what we had in the 60s. My comments about it being entirely different now, notwithstanding, I think counties are are those that should be equipped to handle these services to people in their counties. Well, Roger, actually, that brings me to something I wanted to ask uh, about. We just saw a recently group of mayors saying the state needs to give them significantly more money to deal with these issues. You know, if we are talking about really putting this on the communities the way the LPS measure originally intended, is that part of this as well? Because I, you know, I saw you, a little bit of you going back and forth about this with people online about, you know, uh, the need for this money and maybe how it would be spent and whether we're not spending, it goes back maybe to what Dan even asked earlier about how 
while we're actually using the money we already have. Is there a need for the state to ramp up the money that much more specifically for counties to deal with issues like this? Well, as Roger pointed out, the MHSA Mental Health Services Act is one of the main funding streams for counties to be able to deal with mental health issues. The cities don't get any parts of that, right? The cities can apply to the county to be a provider on some parts, but I think that's what the mayors are saying. And someone who's come from a city council, it's the council and the mayor who gets yelled at, right? Very seldom is it the board of supervisors. So the mayor's and councils feel, I mean, they feel pressure as well. They should. It's happening in their cities. And oftentimes it's, they're not the service providers. It's the counties. So it is my hope that as we're going forward, and Mayor Steinberg agrees with this, that we really find ways to incentivize cities and counties to work together through this new structural changes in the Behavioral Health Services Act funding uh, that we're working on this year. And, so, and just uh, another perspective on that. I was on a board of supervisors, and uh, I assure you, I got yelled at <laughs> plenty, uh, and about issues like this. I met with uh, League of Cities folks yesterday or the day before, and they were talking about this issue. And I cautioned them because the reason that they're asking for it is because counties and cities have not been collaborating together as well as they could. Uh, Sacramento was having its struggles, and I think they've come to grips with it. But I caution cities about the notion of them becoming even partial uh, health and human services provider. Uh, if they get funding for this particular issue, well, we then have crossed the Rubicon of cities becoming HHS providers in addition to counties. And, you know, the state is famous at foisting responsibilities on local governments without funding them. And I said, be careful what you ask for. There may be more after that that doesn't have funding. I think it makes more sense to keep the county as the primary service provider. Cities and counties work together to make sure the funding is adequate and the state encouraging uh, cities and counties to collaborate together to provide the services on the streets. Well, isn't that one of the fundamental problems here where you've got counties, I mean, Sacramento County, for example, big county, San Bernardino County, huge county. The homeless problem is focused, is centered in the city of Sacramento or the city of San Bernardino. And if you're representing one of the far reaches of the county as a supervisor, is it really in your political interest to provide funding for cities, not your constituents, in other words? But they are your constituents. I mean, they're everybody's constituents, right? These are these are Californians that we're talking about here. And these aren't, I keep saying, people like, well, how are we going to be able to afford to take care of them? They're in our communities now. It's not like we're inventing people that we're bringing from somewhere else. These are just the folks who are, who are the most difficult to treat. And so they get to the back of the line because it's it's more difficult. But to me, it's like saying to somebody, oh, we're not going to treat your compound fracture of your femur. We're going to treat that sprain because that's much less expensive. And that's, you know, we're just going to do that. It's, mm -hmm. that, that argument doesn't, I don't think it holds water. Well, I don't agree with that argument. Yeah. <laughs> Let me be clear. Well, However, uh, yeah. uh, I have over the years perceived that you know, certain politicians do what's in their political interest, less what is in the interest of, you know, somebody who could be a rival politician. Well, you know, there's the political realities, of course, are tricky. But like in the case of Sacramento, 
40% of the board represents areas within the city of Sacramento. And then note that one particular uh, supervisor who has been out front on this with significant concerns about homelessness in the, in the city of Sacramento is a guy that represents almost entirely suburban areas, that is Rich Desmond. So the problem has been that the city and the county had a difficult time coming to grips with their cooperative, collaborative efforts. And I think they've gotten past that. It's still not perfect, but it's better than it was. And, the, and I think the state could play a role in helping to encourage that collaboration. And I would just add that part of the LPS Act, in its original form that we're talking about, also included, I mean, the prompt treatment of mental health issues, you know, ending long and indefinite stays, but also public safety and public health. And so I think that is, you know, if, if people, if you don't get it on the compassion side, we need to help folks. I think you can understand it all in the public safety side that we've had multiple examples of people being hurt and when someone's in the throes of a psychotic break. Sure. Well, Senator, um, Senator Eggman and Senator Nilo, you, you, you both know that, you know, what's personal often becomes issues that, that you focus on policy-wise. And I know, Senator Eggman, you had an aunt who was ill, and that helps inform you, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's, and, and it's sad to say that I'm probably in the majority of people who have had this kind of experience of looking for a loved one, of, of getting those phone calls from that loved one when they're, you know, clearly in a dangerous state and you beg the system for help and the system says, no, they're fine. Uh, mm -hmm. And we're also the only, we're the only society that asks family members to be caregivers to the extent that we do with such little support. So that all, you know, and, and my aunt ended up, you know, dying from being attacked while she was on the streets. Um, my cousin would say. So she, would, she died on the streets. She, she did not die in the streets, but she died of HIV AIDS after, after being gang raped while she was preaching the gospel of uh, her five golden rings apiece. Mm. After being let go from a 5150 and deemed not sick enough to hold, have a two week hold. And, and Senator Nilo, do you have a similar history? I well, not as tragic as that. I had a cousin who I was pretty close with, and he was fine as a kid. And then around the age of 16 or 17, uh, he now I'm told he didn't develop it at 16 or 17. There had to be signs before, and perhaps there were. I didn't see it, but it just appeared to me that he kind of cracked when he was about 16 or 17, and he spent the rest of his life as a schizophrenic. Uh, it was not as tragic as uh, Susan's case because he was from a family with means and he was taken care of. He was never on the streets. He was always cared for and supervised, but he never recovered from it. And he unfortunately died of COVID uh, during the pandemic. And this, this was a cousin you grew up with, right? Yes, a first cousin. His mom and my mom were sisters. Senator Eggman, you had uh, similar legislation last year, and as I noted in the beginning, there's been other efforts to try to reform LPS. Most have failed. Uh, your measure last year didn't get out of committee. You know, what's different this year? I'll, I'll say my, my measure got out of every committee in which it had a hearing. <laughs> Thank you for the correction. <laughs> you're, you're very welcome. Yeah, the assembly has different rules have a hearing. That. <laughs> and, and assembly judiciary. It did not. It had and it had a hearing in Senate Health and, and came out of that uh, with almost a unanimous vote, as I recall. And uh, in the assembly, a chair has full discretion not to hear a bill if they choose not to. 
And the chair at that time was uh, Assembly Member Mark Stone, who was aligned with the disability rights. And, you know, we had different philosophies about it. And he just, he refused to hear it. Well, what's and it's unfortunate. Sure. It's unfortunate that that happens because a, a single individual should not be able to prevent the public debate on a legitimately authored and, and proposed bill. That Amen. Would... Cause, yeah, because it would have got out of his committee, I'm pretty sure, if we would have been able to have a presentation and then passed in, through the assembly floor. Well, and you know, but what's different? Yeah, what's different this year? And, and it certainly seems like you, on the surface, and please, again, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that you might have support from Governor Newsom. You know, what's it going to take this year to get this measure to his desk? Well, we made it through our first committee in House of Origin, Health Committee. It goes to Senate Judish next, and then, you know, then to the floor. And then we repeat that process in the Assembly. We feel, you know, I work very closely with Dr. Wood, and he passed that committee last year. And then there's a different chair sitting in the Senate Judiciary, I mean, the Assembly Judiciary Committee. That's uh, Assembly Member Brian Mainshine, who has been a supporter and has worked with the population in San Diego for a long time. So we feel very hopeful, and uh, and I believe it'll get the governor's signature when it arrives on his desk. Do you it's have springtime a... in the legislature. I'm, I'm sorry, Roger, I interrupted you. What did you say? I said it's springtime in the legislature. Hope springs eternal. <laughs> springs eternal. Well, you couldn't be, I couldn't run for elected office if I wasn't optimistic all the time. Well, do you? Do we have a hearing date yet? We do. It is, I believe, it's not this next week. It's the following week in the Judiciary Committee. And we just had our meeting with the Judiciary Committee and talked through, you know, some issues. And we'll see if we have to take any amendments of what they look like. Well, thank you very much. Uh, this has been a really enlightening discussion, as always. And I really appreciate you making the time. I would also like to offer you the opportunity, since we're going to turn to our normal uh closing bit where we discuss who had the worst week in California politics. I know I have a suggestion here, and I would be really interested to hear your your take on it uh, if you have a few minutes to stick around for this segment. And if you don't, well, I understand completely. But if you do, you're more than welcome to. I need to, I need to get off. But okay. I really appreciated this conversation. Uh, nice to see you again, Dan, and nice to meet you, Rich, and always nice good to, to talk you. with you. Absolutely. Roger. Thank you, Senator. Yeah. Okay. Just for much. giggles, I'll stick around, but uh, Susan, good <laughs> yeah. to see you. I'll see you, you on, on Monday. All right, Roger. Thank you, Senator. Thanks. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Okay, well, if from my perspective, there's only one really obvious candidate for who had the worst week in California politics. And for me, that's Senator Dianne Feinstein. You know, aside from obviously dealing with some health issues, you know, she's dealing with a lot of criticism, the growing chorus of people suggesting that she leave office early, you know, suggesting maybe that she's become a detriment to the party, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Some of those voices are fairly prominent now. You know, it, for someone who's been such a titanic figure in California politics for as long as she has, it has to feel pretty rough just to be at this stage and to start having that kind of a, a, of a drumbeat coming against you. And so that would absolutely be my choice for who had the worst week in California politics. Well, it's hard to argue with that one. What about you? What do you think, Senator? Well, I, I'm not going to try to venture a guess on that because I, I really haven't thought of it. 
I could say I did because uh, two weeks ago I had two bills fail in committee and, and I just haven't gotten over it yet. But that would be a lie because I'm used to it. But but with regard to Senator Feinstein, I can't debate that. But I have to say it pains me to see it. Sometimes partisans just relish in the discomfort and disarray in the other partisans tank. But uh, I have to say, I have always liked Diane Feinstein a lot. She is a wonderful person. And uh, well, you know, we certainly don't agree on a lot of things. I've just always really liked her. She's a classy lady. And I hate uh, seeing it come down to this. Yeah, yeah you well, know, it's, go ahead. it's so sad, you know, you because I don't care who it is. You know, we, we, we saw whether it's Babe Ruth or, you know, I mean, pick, pick any iconic figure, you know, it's it's a, one of the things we seem to do in society is, you know, uh, eventually it seems like they turn on all of us at some point. I'm sure there are people lining up right now to, you know, insist that Cap Weekly get a new editor for the podcast. <laughs> there you go. But... Well, I've I've already been through uh, my time with uh, people uh, in the background uh, anxious to see me go, and they did see me go, but I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I would add only one other option, and again, I, I'm going to stick with Feinstein, but uh, Senator, you you also got to live through the other, all, you and all of your colleagues got to live through having to be evacuated from the Capitol this week because somebody... <laughs> Uh, yeah. made what the, the California Highway Patrol deemed a very credible threat against the safety of the building and, the, and its inhabitants. So I would say that also in a, in a, in a different week might, might have been uh, a collective worst week experience. Maybe, but, you know, nothing happened. The guy never, as near as I can tell, never showed up anywhere near downtown Sacramento. They actually arrested him, if I understand correctly, out in Roseville. So appeared he never uh, left that area and so it just one of those little bumps in the road yeah well it's good that the police were all, were all over that you know i should say a few things about i'd like to say a few things about senator feinstein we, we met in 1984 i was a reporter based in san francisco for the la times and i had to do a curtain raiser on the, on the democratic national convention which that year was held in san francisco and i got an interview with then Mayor Feinstein, and you know Senator Nilo, you know you know how it is. You you meet somebody for the for a reporter for the first time. He said, "Nice to meet you. How are you doing? You know, hope everything's good." Senator Feinstein's first words were, "I hope you're prepared. I'm very busy." And <laughs> <laughs> no, hello, how are you at all? Yeah. From, from well, Feinstein. She could be all business like that, and I witnessed that too. But let me tell you another story about Dianne Feinstein. I was back there when we were trying to save the bases here, and uh, uh, it was a special trip, not the cap-to-cap trip, and uh, I was going to see one of her staff people. It was when Richard Nixon had passed away, and it was close to the weekend, and everybody was trying to rush out of town to to get to his funeral, and uh, I checked in with the receptionist. And I sat down. I was waiting for my meeting. She came. The receptionist then had left the office for some reason. So I was there by myself. She came through the office from the front entrance with a couple of staff people and scurried uh, through, obviously in a hurry, uh, back into the uh, to the office end of uh, their offices. And uh, there I was sitting there by myself again. You know, we just nodded at each other. She came out again 
all by herself and walked up to me and said, is somebody helping you? <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yes. Well, but when I was um, editorial page editor at the Sack B, she came in with with one or two aides. I, I think it was two uh, in a big binder. And, and the topic was water. And as you know, water in California is an endlessly complicated uh, topic. And this would have been, you know, I'm trying to date it 2016, 2017. So, you know, really not all that long ago. And she held forth for an hour, answered every one of our questions about water. I, I think she turned to an aide at only once to get a very specific detail uh, that, that she didn't have quite at her fingertips. You know, so, you know, she really has been a titanic figure in, in California. One of the issues will be if she does choose to resign, and no one's going to force her to resign, Ro Khanna, congressman from the San Jose area urged that she re that that she stepped down. That's going to have zero effect on Diane Feinstein. She's going to make the decision on her own. Should she make that decision, then Gavin Newsom's going to have a tough week because he's going to have to make a, a decision that will make one person happy and a hundred other people very unhappy. <laughs> and uh, and you you just have to wonder who that might be. He has said he would, was going to pick a a black woman. I think, though, that things have changed. There was not a campaign at that time. Now there's a campaign. Barbara Lee is running, Congresswoman from Oakland, Katie Porter from Irvine, and Adam Schiff from uh, uh, Burbank, Democrats. So I actually think it's going to be tough for him to follow through on that commitment. And the question is, then, who? Well, as long as he's going to irritate a lot of people, maybe he ought to appoint a Republican. <laughs> Yeah, I was waiting funny. for that, Roger. I, <laughs> I knew that was going to be your suggestion. I, I knew that was going to be your suggestion. And thank you for not letting me down. I, you know, it, it's a perfectly viable thing, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Who knows? Arnold Schwarzenegger, perhaps. Um, I would be surprised at nothing. But I would, again, I agree with your point entirely. He, he essentially boxed himself in a, a little bit of a corner early on. And now, you know, the obvious choice before all this would have probably been Barbara Lee, but if he or does that Karen now, Bass or Holly Mitchell or Shirley Weber. Yeah, um, those all true, but I, I think there's probably that, you know, I mean, that's probably a whole nother show. I mean, I, I, I think mm -hmm. Holly Mitchell, Karen Bass would be fabulous. I don't think either one of them would do it, but that's, again, that's a whole nother show, but that because there's all kinds of dynamics that come into play there, but certainly now because of those dynamics, if, and it is a monstrous, if, Diane Feinstein opts to step down, then it's going to be uh, yes, he might be our candidate for having had the worst week. But we're not gonna we're not gonna ascribe that to him yet. We're we're gonna give him a chance to see <laughs> see what here's, happens. Here's here's a possibility: Nancy Pelosi. We'll see. <laughs> oh boy, somebody who would not run for a for a full term. Yeah. Well, or. I don't know. He's he's probably got a pretty good in-house candidate. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. You know, I'm, I'm spitballing that. I have no inside information. Now we're all just talking. But, you know, maybe maybe Jennifer Newsom would be the, the safest candidate for him. Or maybe Gavin Newsom. Yeah, it's not going to be Gavin Newsom. That, I he, he would never do that. Nor I don't think he would. He's well, again, that's one of those things. It's going to be at the parlor game. You know, who will Gavin pick? But a lot, a lot of things have to happen before that could happen. And so 
We're not in the projection business, so we're not going to do that. But I will say, uh, Senator Nilo, again, I've known and, you for and many, Nilo, many years. And Nilo is a dark horse here. Yeah, well. <laughs> Nilo's no. not available. I don't want to commute to Washington, D.C. Hey, yeah, that's that's a heavy one. Bad yeah. enough getting there from Fair Oaks. So. Yeah. But uh, anyway, Senator Roger, I've known you for many, many years. You've always been a, a great gentleman, and I really appreciate you coming on the show today to talk with us about, about the bill. Uh, it's a big topic this year, very uh, high emotional topic for a lot of folks, and we'll yeah. all be closely watching and see what happens. And, you know, maybe uh, maybe toward the end of the year, we might have to have you and Senator Eggman come back on when we, when we know what's happened, and we'll take an assessment. We'll see what it looks like. When it comes out of the, if if and when it comes out of the legislature, we'll we we'll have to see what it looks like. It could change, and I've enjoyed working with Senator Eggman on this, and it's uh, been a learning process for me. Like I say, she's forgotten from a technical standpoint. She's forgotten more of this stuff than I know, but I'm learning, and uh, I'm enjoying working with her. Well, that's fabulous. Well. Uh, also, to my great co-host today, Dan Moran, thanks for stepping in today. Your expertise here is extremely welcomed and valued. So thanks. Dan. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. Good conversation. Thanks a lot, Senator and Senator Eggman as well. Thank Thanks you for reminding me, Rich. I'll see you around. All okay. right. Well, for uh, myself, Rich Eisen, the editor at Capital Weekly, for my colleague, Tim Foster, who is off on vacation now, my standing colleague, Dan Moraine, Senators uh, Roger Nilo and Susan Talamantes Eggman. We'll see you next time on the Capital Weekly Podcast. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.